I'm not going to go into the past. Here on a Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, as everybody's getting ready for their holiday, obviously. Um, another example, we're going to get a ton of rhetorics where people say, hey, everybody, happy Thanksgiving. And you always hear the stuff where people talk about how hard they work. Oh, man, I got to cook all this food for all these people as if it's such a big chore. And then, oh, I got to pick up these people from the airport as if they're so inconvenienced when they're talking about holidays. And, I, you know, my thought behind that is, is, is pretty simple. It's either one of two things. Either you do it and you appreciate those that are around you and you appreciate your family and you're glad to see them. Or just be honest and say that you're not. Say that your relatives are a hindrance or they're getting in your way of what it is that you're trying to do. But don't play both sides of it. Don't play where, oh, you know, I'm so thankful for my relatives, but man, it sucks having to pick them up for the airport. It sucks having to prepare so much food. My little minor non-sports ran of the day, and that's completed. But, you know, in Major League Baseball, you got the teams pretty much filling out their 40-man rosters to protect themselves with the upcoming Rule 5 draft. And, of course, the Rule 5 draft is held every year at the baseball winter meetings, really on the last day. And in some cases, it's significant because you see some players that are plucked off of other major league teams. And in order to be eligible for the Rule 5 draft, you got to be off of or not on a particular 40-man roster. You have to have three years or more of experience playing in the minor leagues. So a team has a decision to make after three full seasons. And once that happens, you have the opportunity, if the team wants you that much, or the team is is you know feels that you're good enough or worthy enough to be on your be a significant part of your franchise, or at least a part of the franchise that's worth keeping on a 40-man roster, a team will protect you. But in a lot of cases, teams have certain roster limitations where they have certain players that they have to make sure that they keep. And if they don't put a certain player on a 40-man roster, they're very much at risk of losing them. So it becomes kind of a numbers game. And when teams are stuck with that 38, 39 players out of their 40-man roster and are not in a spot where you know, they really feel they could start booting players off and have to protect a certain amount of other players, then you understand. You see certain trades made, like the... Red Sox and the Cubs made trades with the Padres because they were in situations where the Padres had to make sure that certain players that they wanted to protect were protected. And they, they give you the tools to be your own boss. And because they you know, were so close to 40, the 40-man 40 roster, they had to take good players, which normally would be good enough to be kept on an average 40-man roster, and end up moving them to different teams. And they got something for them. They got players that... They don't have to worry about protecting, and the Padres were able to do what they needed to do in regards to keeping their players. Now, one of the things that stood out, and I'll start with the Padres, because I thought there were three specific moves that were made that normally, if it wasn't for a crowded roster and a 40-man roster situation and the ability to protect players from being taken by other teams in a Rule 5 draft, you would see good players, which they are in these cases, 
that would normally stay on a 40-man roster. Now, one of the breakout stories, at least in the first half of last year, was the San Diego Padres third baseman Christian Villanueva. Now, he wasn't a guarantee to make the Padres roster. He wasn't a guarantee to be the everyday third baseman for the San Diego Padres. In fact, I'll throw this out there. There was a guy by the name of Chase Headley that was supposed to be at least a platoon player playing third base for the San Diego Padres in 2018. And I know Yankees fans forget about Chase Headley, but he was under contract in 2018 as a member of the New York Yankees. And Brian Cashman, who if I get a couple minutes, I'll touch on my opinion of him and his ability to pretty much bully other general managers. Maybe we'll touch on that a little later, but, you know, listen, we could devote a whole show to that. But he obviously pawned Chase Headley on the San Diego Padres. And not only did Chase Headley was Chase Headley nowhere near the player he was when he signed that four-year contract with the New York Yankees, but it's amazing how little he was able to contribute to a San Diego team where he had pretty much the best success of his career. He was very good with the with the San Diego Padres, and that was pretty much the prime of his career. He was an all-star there, and that kind of, over time, got him the notoriety to trade to the Yankees, the four-year contract that he ended up signing with them, and that was all because of what he did with the San Diego Padres. Now, this time around, Nothing much to offer. Padres don't have a third baseman. Christian Valenueva ends up stepping in, and he was good. He hit 20 home runs. He had a very good first half. The majority of his home runs he hit in the first half, but it's pretty much judged as this typical 2017-2018 Major League player. A guy who is going to elevate the ball. He's going to hit the ball in the air. He may try to do it four times a game with the hope that one of them is going to go out of the ballpark. And if one of them does, that means he had a good day. If he could get one to go off the wall or maybe a line drive that, you know, gets past an outfielder or something, it's a good day for him. There's, you know, no singles. Maybe not necessarily looking for the walk, which is even a change over what a lot of people will tell you that the game is about right now. And, and we could have that conversation about how the game's changed. But I think there's disputes in how much the game has changed. You can talk about the overemphasis on getting on base and the on-base percentage and stuff like that, but you're seeing the game even progress further than that. And it, it's going to a point where people and players and coaches, that the coaching is in about elevating the ball. Elevate the ball four times. Make sure that you get your big swings and hope to hit a home run. And Christian Valenueva was a pretty good example of that. But looking back at his numbers last year, certainly not a player that was worth being DFA'd. And, of course, he gets DFA'd and immediately his contract gets sold to the Hanshin Tigers in the Japanese league. So it wasn't necessarily, hey, we're going to cut bait with you. But it's a good example. A bigger example is C.J. Crone, designated hitter, part-time first baseman for the Tampa Bay Rays. The Tampa Bay Rays one of the biggest surprises in baseball last year by winning 90 games. You look at that roster up and down, and there really was no business with that team winning 90 games like they did. Now, some players stepped up, and one of them that did was, was a key contributor to the success of the Tampa Bay Rays was C.J. Crone. And he comes in there for one year, hits his 30 home runs, and as the Tampa Bay Rays are looking to fortify their 40-man roster as they're getting ready for free agency, they DFA C.J. Crone, which is pretty similar to what they did last year to another player that had a very good year for them in Corey Dickerson. 
Corey Dickerson, they DFA, they ended up trading them to the Pirates. Maybe they were able to find something similar with Crow. Maybe they, you know, with taking them off the roster, having them be out there for the next 10 days where they could trade, release, or try to designate him off the roster, which would be pretty much in, impossible. And you would expect some team to claim him. A team maybe with a little more 40-man roster space. Certainly not a player you're going to stash. But I think is a player that's worthy of being on a major league roster. And I thought about this before because my take normally would be, and it was last year when it came to Corey Dickerson, and would normally be when it came to C.J. Crone. You would expect to hear me bitch and complain and say the Tampa Bay Rays don't deserve anything good because of what they do to their players. They don't seem to reward any of their good players. They often trade their stars or their up-and-coming stars to get younger players and come through the system. Part of it, of course, is their lack of financial ability to support their players. They don't have the ability to have a high payroll. They don't have the ability to retain their own players. So they try from a small market standpoint to do everything that they need to do to make sure they got continuous talent fluctuating in their system and coming up to the major league level and helping them year in and year out to make up for the veteran players they're going to have to jettison out because they are unable to afford to pay them. So that part of it I get. And if you look at the past success of the Tampa Bay Rays, the fact that they won 90 games last year when they had no business winning 90 games last year, kind of makes it a hard argument to go up against what it is that they're doing. When they take their big 30 home run hitter, and decide to DFA him and say that he's got no use on their team. They're either going to trade him or just going to release him outright, which they may very well do here. They may not be able to find a taker. There may not be an American League team that's willing to commit the designated hitter spot in their lineup day in and day out or the majority of the time. Or maybe as a right-handed component in a platoon, maybe playing some first base, playing some designated hitter. If a team's not willing to commit that to a guy like Crone, he may end up getting outright released and added to the free agent market. And if he gets added to the free agent market, I don't think it's necessarily bad news for him. I do think, at least immediately, at least within the next couple months or so, I think there's a lot that other teams are going to decide to fortify with their roster before they're willing to make a call on C.J. Crone. And one thing that I won't rule out, and I'll say it's a distinct possibility, and this may be thinking maybe a little too much outside of the box right now. Maybe the Tampa Bay Rays bring him back if he's not signed by the end of December and the early part of January. Maybe they're looking to fortify their roster, looking at a couple different options that they have. Maybe they want to address their bullpen. Maybe they want to look for some lower market uh, value type of items and players to add to their lineup. But maybe if this player isn't signed, by December or the early part of January, he comes back in maybe on a minor league deal, maybe on a low base salary. Remember, he's owed or expected to be owed a certain amount of money in arbitration. So, you know, the Rays are doing everything they can to hold back on money. The same thing happens to Miami's Derek Dietrich, who plays in almost 150 games for them. And I understand the Marlins, a team last year going absolutely nowhere, a team that just with all due respect to them, just was not any good just was not expected to be do, do able to do anything special. So if you are a player, maybe a borderline starting player, maybe a marginal type of player, your opportunity to play every day may exist for the Miami Marlins and nobody else. A guy by the name of Brian Anderson played third base and some right field for them. Had a pretty good year. 
got some consideration when it came to the Rookie of the Year award. But, of course, if you look at the likes of a Ronald Acuna and a Juan Soto and a Walker Buehler, he certainly wasn't up on that level, but had a very good year for the Miami Marlins. And the thing you could say about him is if he was playing for another major league team or the majority of other major league teams, would he really have gotten a chance to play in 150-plus games and be an everyday major league player? That option was there because the Miami Marlins were as bad as they are. Now, because of that, they got the fruits of Brian Anderson. They certainly got to see what he's capable of, and he had a very good year. And if I'm the Miami Marlins going into 2019, I'm certainly keeping this guy as a part of my young core. Another guy in Derek Dietrich gets that same type of opportunity. And you look at his numbers, it was above replacement level. He had 16 home runs. He was about a 240 hitter. Kind of a pesky type of hitter, a guy that could get some singles, but you could also strike out if you got a good fastball and some good off-speed stuff. And the Marlins make the decision to DFA Dietrich. Now, they're in a similar situation to the Tampa Bay Rays. A lot of players that they're looking to protect from the Rule 5 draft, a team that is rebuilding, is on the five-year plan, maybe year two of the five-year plan, and is looking to maybe influx its roster, its 40-man roster, with some very good, talented players. And they look at a guy like Dietrich and say that, listen, maybe he is a dime a dozen. Maybe he is a major league player, but maybe there's also a way that we can duplicate his performance. Now, a guy that played in 140-plus games, pretty similar to C.J. Crone, pretty similar to what Christian Villanueva would have done had he not gotten hurt in the second half of the year. You're looking at three distinct players that are in a position where, you know, they're almost free agents right now. And one of them in Villanueva is going to play in Japan because apparently there's not enough roster spots in Major League Baseball for him. Dietrich may be a free agent. Maybe he gets traded. Crone, probably the most likely of the three to be traded and remain on a 40-man roster. But it shows where Major League Baseball is in 2018. I think there is a little bit of an over-obsession with players that just happen to be under the age of 22. Now, we're seeing an influx when it comes up to the major you know, major leagues. You're looking at you know, the Sotos, the Acunas, the Ozzy Albies, players like that that are coming up to the major leagues, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., a series of very good young major league players who, if you're a young fan, certainly you're excited to see. You're, you're looking at the next generation of good young major league players that may be the stars of the future. But teams, I believe, are taking this a little too far. I think they're believing too much in the fact that it's just going to be that simple, that you bring in a group of 20, 21, 22-year-old young players, flood my 40-man roster with it, and give up on players that may be a little bit older, maybe a little, I don't know, not very well accomplished in their major league career to this point. And those players have absolutely no value. I look at a guy like Chris Carter three years ago, leads the National League in home runs with 41, doesn't really have a job the next season. And you've seen it happen very often with a lot of decent major league players. Now, the thought when you ask executives, when you ask people associated with the game of why this is happening, it has a lot more to do with the thought that that production can be duplicated. And the fact that we've seen it with younger players, and maybe some of those younger players have a little bit more of an upside. But I also think on the other side of it, playing you know both sides of the spectrum here, kind of you know being ambivalent for a moment, 
you're looking at rosters, the way they're being constructed, and just there's an overemphasis of younger players. Now, if you did a good job in scouting, if you did a good job of making sure that you have the right young players that are athletic, that could be that next generation of a Mike Trout or a Ronald Acuna or a Juan Soto or somebody along that category, then good for you. But if you're just flooding your roster with players that happen to be in the lower part of their 20s, just because you think you're going to have a little bit more of a shot to see what they can do, I think you're, you're setting yourself a little bit short. Maybe you're a couple pennies successful, but over time you're going to be a dollar foolish. Now the question, of course, is always each individual team, what is their plan for this year? You got the tanking that's going on in Major League Baseball, which you know it's, you know, if one team's doing it, it's too much. But you know on every given year now, you're going to see two, three teams saying, hey, you know, we're probably going to tank this year. All the young executives that are coming from big-time schools, but not big-time schools with the study of baseball, the big-time schools because of their study of numbers and sabermetrics and analytics. And they're getting their places in major league organizations in their 20s, becoming major league general managers by the time they're 30 or 35. The thought is, all right, from a number standpoint, how can we duplicate these certain numbers? And how could, as we're getting a call from some spam right now, so another typical classic pass ball show moment, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. But, you know, just to finish off this topic, because we're going to get into a couple other things. We're going to talk some football. We're going to talk some NBA. The last thing I want to bring up in regards to this, you know, you're seeing very good and useful major league players that have the ability to impact the team. And if you are maybe in the middle of the pack or towards the top of the pack, or maybe you expect from a performance standpoint to put up good numbers, to win somewhere between 80 and 100 games over the course of the 2019 season, you may want to look at some of these players that are being bypassed by other organizations. A guy like Corey Dickerson, who the Tampa Bay Rays did not want last year after becoming an all-star and doing everything that he did for them, ended up being a very good contributor to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the Pittsburgh Pirates, when they were still in a pennant race in the month of August and the early part of September, could give a lot of that credit to Corey Dickerson. And a guy that, in all honesty, the Pirates didn't have to give, give up too much to get. So maybe in a day and age that we live in, where there's all this emphasis on making sure that players that are on rebuilding teams are all young, if you're looking to maybe get that advantage, there might be a different part of the free agent market that you could study and maybe pick a decent player or two off of. And I'm not saying CJ Crone is going to be a difference maker, but if you have a certain situation where you're in American League, you got a DH first base spot, or maybe you have a pretty good left-hand hitter, or maybe you sign a guy like a Logan Morrison or a Lucas Duda as a complimentary player to a CJ Crone. I think you could put up between 30 and 40 home runs between the two of them. Or maybe 50 home runs when you're splitting them in some cases between a designated hitter and first baseman. So, you know, you look about 10 years ago, it was expected that teams were willing to do stuff like this. They've gotten away from it. They, they you know, the Tampa Bay Rays of the world winning 90 games last year. And once again, I mean, I'm going to be a little bit of a little bit bearish when it comes to my expectations of the Tampa Bay Rays for next year, but they continue to prove me wrong year in and year out. 
So I got to, at some point, whether it's now or whether it's in a little bit, start to trust them and their ability to do the things that they're doing because they won 90 games last year with a roster that was garbage, with a roster that did not, at least from an on-paper standpoint, look like a Major League Baseball team. Now, you could have said when the season started that there were probably good AAA teams that could have competed with the roster the way it was constructed for the Tampa Bay Rays. And you know what? People don't want to talk about that because in the end, you're judged by how many games that you win. You're not judged by the construction of your roster and the way it looks. If you win 90 games, you're as good as any team that's ever won 90 games in the history of Major League Baseball. But the Rays roster was not constructed in a way where it was expected to win 90 games. Now, if they construct a similar roster this year and do the same thing, then all the power in the world goes to that. Now, I'd say it was a fluke. But you're not looking at the first time in the history of this franchise that they've done this. They've gotten the most out of players that, you know, in some cases are young and probably part of the future. But in other cases, veterans, a guy like a CJ Crone had the impact that he had last year. A guy like Sergio Romo, who was remembered and respected for what he did for the San Francisco Giants, helped him win a couple World Series, doing what he did for now. And it's like veteran players that any team could have gotten all of a sudden come to Tampa Bay and they do very well in that type of environment. Joey Wendell, a who I thought when he was with the Oakland Athletics and he was traded from the Cleveland Indians to the Oakland Athletics in a deal that sent Brandon Moss to Cleveland, I looked at him and I said, maybe if things go right for him, he'll be a pretty good utility player. And, and you know, he turned into friggin' Ben Zobers with that. So, so it's amazing. There, There is a certain way that things are succeeding in that type of environment where they're able to plug certain players in and get the most out of them. Now, if I'm looking for something to duplicate, yeah. If I'm any one of those up-and-coming teams that may not necessarily either be interested in spending the money that it takes in regards to payroll or have the financial ability to put a payroll together, where you could have a competitive team, I'm certainly going to study the likes of the Tampa Bay Rays or what they're seeing in these certain players. And obviously you think, if you go back years upon years and remember the early Moneyball days, not necessarily the Billy Bean days and the movie you know, with uh, you know Brad Pitt, the whole thing, you know the days of Sandy Alderson in the 1980s, where they didn't necessarily go all young. They had some very good young players by the name of Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire, but they also studied numbers to a point that they hadn't really been studied before. And they looked at Dennis Eckersley, a mid-30s or early 30s starting pitcher who had some success in Cleveland and Boston and the Cubs as a starter. Looked like he had flamed out a little bit, but hey, maybe we could get a little more velocity if we use him in one-inning segments. He might be able to throw the ball a little bit harder. Rick Honeycutt, a decent starter, maybe a back-of-the-rotation starter for a series of years with teams like Texas and the Los Angeles Dodgers. You look at him and you say, hey, if he's just going up against left-hand hitters, he may have an advantage. So they were innovative at that moment. They were trying to think of things that other teams in baseball were not doing. A guy like Dave Stewart, who there may be some, not necessarily off-the-field issues, but perhaps 
attitude issues. There were some complaints about the way Dave Stewart and a couple of the teams that he played for conducted himself. But a guy that always had that raw talent, why not give him a chance to go out there and make 30, 35 starts and see what happens? Teams that don't necessarily have the wherewithal to spend the big money are always trying to come up with those next ideas. And those next ideas, once they're proven to be successful, all of a sudden get duplicated. That's the story of Major League Baseball. That's really what we look at. And Trisha is going to town on some uh, some points here, so I give her credit. And I have no idea what it is that you're trying to get into, but I do want to acknowledge your contribution to the show. So thank you. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Moving on, we're going to talk about the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and the list was released yesterday, and I think it's always a good discussion because there's always a handful of players that you look at and you say that they have a very good chance of getting in, and you know, if you compare the Pro Football Hall of Fame to the way things are handled in Major League Baseball, obviously it's the very, it, it's pretty much the ideal of the way things are supposed to be done. Now, sports are there to honor the best players. And best players get the opportunity to be honored in different ways. They have retirement ceremonies. If you look at a guy like Adrian Beltre, certainly his number 29 will probably be retired by the Texas Rangers. And maybe you can make the discussion that if it's the Seattle Mariners or the Los Angeles Dodgers, you may want to respect a guy who's obviously had the respect to be considered a Hall of Famer. You got players that come through like that, and they get respected throughout their career. And maybe the little bit of a goodbye, a Joe Maurer getting his moment, a David Wright getting his moment when it's time to move on. And then there's the time where you want to honor that player, maybe retire their number, maybe have another day for them where they're dressed up in a suit and a tie. And I get it. But when it comes to the Hall of Fame, it's a time to honor the best of the best. And I'm not going to make this a baseball discussion because I've made my views hundreds and hundreds of times about how I feel about the way the baseball handles its Hall of Fame. There's no other sport that exists in the entire world that the best players ever are not honored and given that esteemed honor. There's not, no more politics involved in any other sport when it comes to putting the best of the best in its hall, other than when it comes to Major League Baseball. But when you think about football, the way it's set up, now you look at Terrell Owens and the way things were handled last year, he was in a spot where he decided because he felt disrespected because he didn't get in the first couple of years that he was nominated, that he was going to bypass the Hall of Fame altogether. Now, I think that was more on T.O. than it was the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Because if you look at the history of the Pro Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Fame, you see the best players that ever played in each one of those eras are all acknowledged and are all part of Canton, Ohio. Terrell Owens got in. Now, he was not acknowledged at the ceremony because he decided that he didn't want to be part of it. 
but he's still acknowledged as one of the best of the best to ever play. And that's why I give pro football the respect that it deserves because those that were the top of the top are in there. And unfortunately, you look at a guy like O.J. Simpson who had some issues after his pro football playing career, he is still acknowledged for what he did on the field. Pretty similar to Pete Rose. Now, listen, O.J. Simpson may or may not have murdered his wife, and obviously he went to trial for that, was found not guilty, but you could say that there was some evidence that existed that at the very least he was part of it. You can't go back to what the guy did as one of the best running backs to ever play the game and just erase that from history. You may, as a fan, not want to remember that. And if that's how you feel, you're, trust me, you're entitled to your point of view, and you can be respected for feeling a certain way. And I got no issue with anybody feeling that about O.J. Simpson. You know, O.J. Simpson's post-football life, which to a certain point looked like it was going to be pretty good, looks like he was going to be a respected actor, looked like he was going to be a spokesperson for pretty much anybody that wanted him to be a spokesperson, and obviously ended up making some bad decisions in a lot of part of his life. But even though those decisions were made, it didn't hide away from the fact of what he did on the pro football field. He literally was one of the best running backs that the game has ever seen. And the Pro Football Hall of Fame acknowledges that. It says that O.J. Simpson has a plaque and a, you know, a, a, a figurehead, a, a uh, bronzing of a head that's there in Canton, Ohio. But when it comes to the people that are up on the ballot this year, the players and, of course, some coaches are up there, I have a hard time acknowledging and wanting to be so quick to put players and coaches in its Hall of Fame that didn't necessarily play and coach long enough. Now, this is a different topic that we could get into because you talk about the way the game has changed. You saw the great Jim Brown. You saw a guy by the name of Earl Campbell. You've seen some of the best to ever play the game to do it in short time frames and be smart enough to know when to get out. Of course, you got the CTE. You got the issues that go on where players are putting their lives at risk every time they go on the field. It could be that one jarring shot to the head that could impact them the rest of their life. You got players that have been away from the game for a series of years but can't handle the stress of what has happened in their head. And in all honesty, you, you got people from a psychological standpoint that can't deal with the rest of their life. And, you know, you think of the acknowledging a player that may have played four or five years. And a guy like Calvin Johnson kind of stands out. At some point, he may be eligible for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And if he is, good for him. You know, I, I like what he did over the short period that he did it. And maybe as time goes by, he'll acknowledge that him getting out when he did was the best decision he could have ever made. But does that make him a pro football Hall of Famer? Jimmy Johnson coached the Dallas Cowboys to a couple Super Bowls. Does that make him a pro football Hall of Famer? When should there be a certain criteria like you have in Major League Baseball to say, hey, 10 years. And maybe football, you could say five or seven or whatever it is. 
maybe to have a minimum of a certain amount of years that somebody would have to play to get into the Hall of Fame. You, know, you think of so- Sandy Koufax getting through, you know, 11 years. You know, Albert Bell, who is certainly a, a player that should be a baseball Hall of Famer, really playing about 10 full seasons. And obviously, as it applies to football, the Browns, the Campbells, those who did not get 10 years and were obviously acknowledged for being the best of the best. But that was one point that I wanted to hit up today. And the other part of it was I looked at it and I really noticed only five names that stood out to me that were absolute surefire Hall of Famers. Now, what the Pro Football Hall of Fame does that Major League Baseball doesn't do, it is more about inclusion. In fact, if you look at the ballots, the way they're set up and the votes that are put in, you see that there's seven, eight, you know, a serious amount of players that are getting in year in and year out. Major League Baseball, you know, they had six this past year, but in other years, they've had one, two, zero. It's not going to be the case in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So in, in some instances, there's going to be players that are not maybe put up to the standards of surefire Hall of Famers. You could talk about Adrian Beltre in baseball. You could talk about the likes of a Jerry Rice in football and say, all right, well, what if a player was not up on that level or put the numbers up that those players did? And you see it very often. You almost see the other side of the argument when it comes to a Hall of Fame honoring the best of the best. Is it, in the pro football instance, a series of the very good? And maybe it is. Maybe there are a lot of very good players that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In Major League Baseball, there probably aren't enough of the best of the best in its respective Hall of Fame. So amongst first-timers, I look at a guy like Tony Gonzalez, Really one of the best tight ends that have ever played in the history of the National Football League. I don't think there's going to be any doubt that he ends up getting in. Ed Reed, certainly one of the more dominant safeties to play in pro football history, certainly of his generation, seems to be a surefire Hall of Famer. I look at some other players. I look at a guy like Clay Matthews and the amount of time that he played One of the more significant defensive players, a guy who played almost 20 years in the National Football League, is probably, from a number standpoint, not getting the respect that he's deserved. A player that certainly his generation has passed him by a little bit. You're looking at players that did not play with Clay Matthews or against Clay Matthews. And of course, I'm talking about senior, not junior that are getting into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So maybe some discussion can be made. Maybe there's a little more micromanaging of Clay Matthews and the impact that he had on the National Football League. And maybe when the numbers are put together, you could say that maybe he didn't accomplish enough. But I think this would be a good time for him to get in. And the other player is Edderin James, who I I think Edderin James was really underrated over the course of his football career. Spent all those years with the Colts. When it came down to it, he put up Hall of Fame type of numbers. And I think there is a number of different players that you could talk about now that are putting up similar type of numbers. A guy like Adrian Peterson, when he's all said and done, when his career is over. A guy like Frank Gore, 
you're going to look back and say, hey, those guys based off of where they ended up ranking when it came to the top running backs of all time, they were Hall of Famers. And I think Edwin James is going to get that same type of credit. Now, there's one play, one coach, actually, that I wanted to look at for a second and say, you know, in the National Football League, there is always that throwback player. that played in a generation or coached in a generation before and ends up getting put in. It's always like that story. And I remember the year, I think it was 2011, where I went down to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and it was Floyd Little, a running back in the 1970s with the Denver Broncos. And I look at a coach that ended up coaching for 14 years, ended up having a winning record, he never made it to the Super Bowl, but was pretty consistent and was also an offensive genius. One of the, you know, the, the way his offense is set up for many, many years, other teams tried to duplicate it. And that's Don Coryell. And of course, Don passed away in 2010 at the age of, I think it was 84, but was a coach in the National Football League for the St. Louis Cardinals and the San Diego Chargers for a long period of time. And obviously his offenses were given a lot of respect and credit and duplicated over the series of years that have come. Now you look at a guy like Andy Reid and what he has done for football. And I, I wanted to kind of make a little bit of a comparison or a parallel to a guy like Andy Reid because Andy Reid may never win a Super Bowl. In fact, he's got a very good chance of winning this year if you follow what the Kansas City Chiefs are doing. They really look like they're the cream of the American football conference. But if Andy Reid never won a Super Bowl, would he be on the borderline of being a Hall of Fame coach? He's done it for a while, but his offense is something that's being duplicated throughout football. He was revolutionary. You could say that he was amongst the lines of an innovator. And I think Don Coryell was in comparison to what you may say down the road about Andy Reid if he never won a Super Bowl. Is there a coach that spent enough time in the league that came up with ideas and used things that are duplicated many times, and because of that, that makes him an innovator, that makes him a person that if it wasn't for what he did, perhaps, maybe the game would not be what it is right now. And that's why I think Don Coryell is a Hall of Famer. And I would think even if Andy Reid, and Andy Reid has a very good chance over the next couple of years with that team he's got in Kansas City. That offense is run the exact way that he wants it. He's got the quarterback. He's got the running back. He's got the receivers. He's got the tight end. He has got the best players that he has ever had to run his offense the way that he has wanted to. So if Andy Reid went out there and won a Super Bowl or two over the next two to five years, I don't think anybody would be shocked. But if for some reason he does not, if for some reason he doesn't win a Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs and he ends up retiring in his mid to late 60s, whatever he wants to, whatever he's done coaching, he wants to end up moving on with his life. Do you look at Andy Reid as a Hall of Famer? Because if you do, Don Coryell should be in. But even if you don't, there's a very good case we could have this discussion 10 years from now when it comes to Andy Reid. So if I'm putting five people in the Hall of Fame based off the 2019 ballot, Tony Gonzalez, Ed Reed, Edwin James, 
Don Coryell, Clay Matthews in that order. I go with five, but you know how the Pro Football Hall of Fame works. There's probably going to be a couple more that are going to get in. So guys like Steve Atwater, Champ Bailey, Rondé Barber, Tony Baselli, Alan Fanica, John Lynch, Ty Law. They're all players that impacted the game in a certain way. I look at a guy like Jimmy Johnson, and with all due respect to him, he's done a good job on, on the, uh, the CBS network or Fox or wherever it is that he is doing the, the analyst work. He didn't coach long enough. He won a couple Super Bowls. Just because he won a couple Super Bowls doesn't make him a Hall of Fame coach. And you know what? If you wanted to be a legendary coach like the guy he took over for in Dallas in Tom Landry or a guy who down the road he took over for in Miami in Don Shula, he should have coached for a little bit longer because he didn't stick around long enough to be a Hall of Fame coach. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find in no beer at any cost. So last thing we're going to hit up, a little bit of NBA talk, and I do thank everybody who's tuned in to the Passball Show, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. So there's a little bit of a turmoil going on with the Washington Wizards, and it's pretty similar to what I spoke about when it came to Golden State, when it came to Houston, the Rockets, are they doing the right thing by moving on from Carmelo Anthony? How do the Warriors control the issues going on between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant? And you look at the Washington Wizards, a team that has not necessarily lived up to the hype. They got the star backcourt of John Wall and Bradley Beal. And they got some issues going on where players are calling out the coach or calling out the general manager, whether it's Scott Brooks, the coach, or Grunfeld, the general manager. Is it appropriate? Is it something that should be done? No. But it's something that could be expected when a team has high expectations and is not getting the job done. So I was thinking about putting a title, maybe a little play on words, are the Washington's Wizards or Bullets, and obviously meaning Bullets in a figurative sense, not in a way that the team name was put together. The original Washington Bullets was based off of an actual bullet because Washington, D.C. at one point was considered the murder, murder capital of the entire country. So, listen, I, don't, I didn't think there was enough good taste in that. Like, I could say, hey, as a joke, but I understand in the world that we live in, we don't want to get too, too far ahead of ourselves. Say, hey, I mean this as a joke, but if you take it in a literal sense, it's not in good taste. I don't feel like having to sit here and apologize for stuff like that. So the way I'm going to address this is there is some issues going on in Washington. And is it going to lead to a trade of a Bradley Beal, perhaps to Charlotte? They got you know Kemba Walker and his 60 points. If they add a guy like Bradley Beal to the mix, does that make them a better team? I mean, is there a situation where there could be a coach in the NBA that could step in in one of these basketball environments and control the players and not have it be run by the players and have the coach come in there and man up and say that, listen, this is the way things have to be. And I don't care about your attitude. I don't care if you're pissed off. I don't care if you're not happy with the way that I'm doing my job as a coach. I am the leader of this team. 
I'm being paid to lead this team by example. Now, from an X's and O's standpoint, if things aren't working out, if I'm not putting up the right plays and it's not resulting in our team winning games, in the end, the head coach is the one that's going to take the fall. So they already have that going against them, but I'm very concerned, especially in the National Basketball Association. Now, you can make the choice and have anybody coach the team you want. So it's not on the individual coach. I'm not going to point to any particular coach that I'll say that I necessarily feel bad about because they're given the opportunity and it's all about wins and losses. And if you don't win over a certain period of time, you're going to lose your job and it doesn't matter who you are. So I don't have an issue with anybody that happens to be the coach, but I think the position should be respected a little bit more than it is in a national basketball association. Now, when it comes to wins and losses, that's on the coach. And any time a team wants to move on from that coach because they don't think they're getting enough wins and they're getting too many losses, I understand that that's a business decision that has to be made. But when it comes to the respect factor, coaches, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your track record is, if you're appointed that position, you should get the respect from the players. And if players don't want to respect that position, they should be sent elsewhere. Yes, well, when I see five weirdos dressed in togas stabbing a guy in the middle of the park in full view of a hundred people, I shoot the bastards. That's my policy. That was a Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, you moron. You killed five actors. Good ones. But once again, two separate things. Respecting a coach, and then the other side of it is the coach being held accountable for wins and losses. So we're going to cut the show a little bit short today. We'll talk about Markel Fultz the next time. Uh, you know, does he need to see a shrink? Does, has he forgotten how to shoot a basketball? Those are all interesting things that can be brought up. Um, we can keep that discussion going offline. But this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. We'll be back to you towards, back with you towards the latter part of the week. We'll do some NFL picks. I hope everybody has a nice Thanksgiving get suspended with the people that they enjoy and love. But most importantly, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be that jerk that's out there saying, oh my God, I can't believe all this food I have to prepare for all these people. If you don't want the people there, then don't prepare the food. Go somewhere else where they can serve you. If you're going to complain about, oh man, all the travel plans of all these people and my relatives that have to come in from all different parts of the country. If you don't want to see them, don't invite them in. Don't be a hypocrite. Hope everybody has a nice Thanksgiving. We'll be back with you probably on the other side, maybe Friday or Saturday. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.